Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Sherry Shannon Vanstone, is the founder, CEO, and president of her business, Profound Impact, which is a company with an AI-powered tool called Research Impact that helps academic and industry researchers find the perfect funding match. Now, over her career, Sherry's made a significant contribution to the spectrum of digital industries from cryptography to telecommunications and technology, while also making a major contribution to the advancement of all women. She is an extraordinary leader, as you'll hear in this conversation, as well as a visionary who's made a material difference to the roles women play and their influence in the digital economy. In 2015, she was awarded the World Waterloo Region's Female Innovator of the Year. In 2019, she received an honorary doctorate of laws from Western University, and she was the recipient of the prestigious Leadership Excellence Award in Entrepreneurship for 2020 for women in communications and technology. Now, in this conversation, we went down a lot of different, I guess, I don't want to call them rabbit holes, but we had some amazing conversation. I had a couple of very big aha moments. And in this particular conversation, Sherry shared some amazing insights and many life lessons and business lessons. So you listen in and enjoy. Sherry Shannon Vanstone, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Well, it's great to be here today, Patrick. So, Sherry, you know, I, you know, I, I put out your bio. I do all of those things into this, but it's never as strong as if the person that I'm having these conversations with shares a little bit about themselves. And you know, when somebody says to you, Sherry, what do you do? Uh, what's your answer these days? I'm a serial tech entrepreneur, having had successful exits in both Canada and the U.S., and I'm a strong advocate for women and female lad ventures. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, the journey that you've been on in terms of where you are in business today. So uh, you've done a lot of things. You've had a lot of success. You know, women in business have become part of what your passion has grown into, I'm assuming, or maybe it started there. But tell me a little bit about the business that you've got going on today, and then we'll start to back up a little bit. I uh, currently... My company is Profound Impact. We, uh, we provide an AI-based solution to match funding opportunities, research funding opportunities, with researchers and industry partners. And in fact, there's over $300 billion available globally for research funding. There are hundreds of thousands of industry partners, and they're 8.8 million researchers that need that funding. So what we do is get match these, so there's a perfect match. Of that $300 billion of funding, it's estimated that a third of it is wasted 
due to inappropriate uh, or not sufficient matches. So we believe that profound impact, that we can make the best match, we can get the most of the research dollar, and we can advance research in all these critical areas. Well, it's interesting that the name profound impact really has meaning when you start to connect the dots of what it is that you do when you look at research funding required to do research and then the technology that you're using to do that. So when we talk about research and the requirement of funding for research, is there a specific area of research that you are supporting around or do you, are you just literally using AI to look at all of the possibilities of research and matching money to or capital to uh, any kind of research is a, a kind of open book that way, or is it specific? It is open book. However, we do believe just because the funding pools are bigger in certain areas of research, such as AI and climate control and environmental issues and med tech and pharmaceuticals. So we see an enormous amount of funding in these areas, and therefore it attracts people more people that are doing research in those areas. Although we provide from the social sciences to the natural sciences, all the funding opportunities matches. Well, this is such an interesting business model. You know, I'd like to unpack it a little bit more if you're okay with having some conversation around that because I find it interesting that you're using AI to make matches. Are researchers approaching you saying, hey, listen, I need capital, I need funding for this particular project, can you help me out? Or are you actually saying, hey, research guys, you know, based on what I'm seeing and what you're doing, I have uh, a group or I have some funding I think might be available to you if you meet those requirements or standards of that. Like how does the kind of model work in terms of even bringing possible, I guess we'll call them leads in the research area that needs capital or on the other side, capital partners who are going, listen, I got to put some capital. I got to place some capital. I'm looking at supporting research, kind of find me some good projects. Like how does it all work? Yes. Well, in all those ways. So let's talk about, we go into a university or to a college or a research institution or a hospital research facility, and we may work with their central research office. There may be the innovation commercialization or research office and say, okay, we'll offer this product to you. They license it as an annual subscription, and then they go to the researchers and present it to them. The researchers opt in to this opportunity. We also go to the funding organizations and say, you have this money, Let's, we'll, we'll bring in that opportunity and help you find researchers. And then we also go to the researchers themselves. Let's say there's an organization that we're not in yet, let's say MIT, for example. We are working with them, haven't closed them yet. So let's say there's a researcher there who says, I'm interested in this, they hear about us. They can go online and sign up for free for this service. There is a paid subscription if they like it and they want to continue get into more of the detailed offerings, but they can come up, sign up, and then they give us their permission to bring in all of their profile, which includes their publications, their previous grants, their common CV, uh, curriculum vitae. So all of that's brought in. We do believe in opt-in. We would love to do it the other way around, but although much of this data is public data, we prefer to say to the researcher, you tell us, we'll bring it in, and we'll do the match, 
we'll work with you, but this is an opt-in, even with the institutions that we uh, work with. Wow. So give me a little bit of, uh, I mean, it sounds, this sounds like a pretty innovative or future thinking business model, given what you're doing and and certainly the demand for it. We hear about uh, research lacking funding all the time, yet you're on the other side of it saying, there's a lot of money out there. You just got to be able to match it. And so that's an interesting concept. Now, Obviously, you saw the problem or you saw the gap and you said, let's try and fill that gap. Or I don't know, how did you kind of get to this where you are today to come up with profound impact? Well, that's a great question because profound impact has been around since 2018. We started out working with uh, with the University of Waterloo, which is uh, west of Toronto. It's a world-renowned engineering and mathematics university, even though they have other faculties too. So we started working out with working with them on a, something else called a profound connection where we we're trying to measure their global impact. That was profound impact. So uh, so we started working with that, but the product just didn't scale. It was just w- working with one you know, institution at a time. I love the concept. It was about visualization and impact and measuring impact and you know, inspiring future impact by all of this, uh, you know, highlighting the, uh, the significance impact of a specific organization. So then we, uh, we had another product, which we still have these products, Career Impact, where we looked at programs, specific programs, such as a co-op programs, and providing a feedback loop to, so the graduates you know, graduate, but they don't track them after that. They don't have any interaction with their graduates, so they don't really know the impact of their program on their career trajectory. Mm-hmm. So we, we did career impact. We looked at uh, the careers and looked, got down to the granularity of, of female identifying career trajectory versus male identifying individuals trajectory. And that actionable insight, again, lots of data, lots of using uh, AI to bring the data in to be able to query, uh, search it and query it and then be able to um, analyze it. In doing this, we, we, was, we worked with our customers and we just said, you know, we love both of these products. They're very successful for us, but it doesn't scale to the, you know, the billions of dollars a market that we want to you know, get to, the, the billion dollars of revenue plus a year, and it just doesn't scale. So being trying to be mindful of our customers, we, we went, started talking to them and said, what keeps you up at night? What's your pain point? And one of the universities, well, several of them, but one in particular, said, we have this problem. We need more research funding. We have a spreadsheet of research opportunities. We have a spreadsheet of our researchers, and we're doing this manually. And some of these opportunities, that three or 400-page document that a human being needs to read and pull out the nuggets in it to really say, okay, this is what it's about, so we, we said, well, let's, uh, let's help you understand, does everybody else have this problem? Or what tools are they using? Maybe they solved it already. So for Canada, we did a nationwide survey with this university, Wilfrid Laurier University. We came back with, there weren't very many tools. If they were, they were just search engines, a database, and you still had to do the search yourself. You still had to put in the criteria. There was no automatic and targeted and timely uh, matching. So we said, well, hey, 
you have a problem, we validate it that other people have the same problem and there's no real clear solution. We are a data analytics company. We've been dealing with data and AI, machine learning. We can build this product. So we built it and with working with this university and we finalized uh, the pilot with them at the end of last year. And now they've uh, renewed for next year and hopefully subsequent years. And now we're selling it to other universities and colleges. So what I love about it now, I'm a technologist. I was a mathematician. I've been also a serial entrepreneur, as I mentioned. So I've been on the other side where I have a solution looking for a problem. So now I think it's that we have a problem and then we found a solution and said, yes, this seat, this is solving a real problem. Now, where did the, you know, because AI, I mean, it's been around for a, a while. However, having said that, it's really only came or come to the forefront over the past couple of years, really, in terms of what's available for public use and uh, even people's understanding, making it user-friendly. So do you also have a background in AI or do you just have, you know, a team that embraces and understands that technology? Because you're talking about back in 2018 where, you know, AI was, you know, people were still having trouble figuring out how to spell it. So, you know, here we are today and AI is, you know, a working tool that many are embracing on a daily basis, myself included, to the degree that I do. This is a whole different kind of I mean, this is some pretty serious kind of understanding in behind it. So where did that part of it come from for you? Well, that's a good point. My background was a cryptologic mathematician with U.S. government. So that meant I make codes and break codes, uh, encryption codes. Now that's, so mathematics background. And it led me into these startups that I've been at. My last startup, I sold, I was, I had a non-compete, so I really wasn't looking to start a new company, but I, I did get in, involved in that. So AI is not new to me because I've been, I, w- I worked for MasterCard for a period of time and we'd use neural networks and AI in the 60s and 70s and 80s. It's just got, became much more sophisticated for fraud detection, but I have no specialty in, in the area. So I've surrounded myself with a good team that understands Software as a service, that's one thing, but also AI and machine learning. We're also partnering with researchers ourselves to learn more uh, and, and gain more tools. We, are, we do not provide AI tools for other people. We utilize other people's tools and we develop our own for our own use. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is, this is exciting. It's, I, I just signed up for an AI and machine learning course. I feel it's an opportunity I think everyone should to learn a little bit about it, or a lot about it, in fact. But it's been around for a long time. What's, what's happened, though, in the last few years is the algorithms and computational power is, 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 is uh, more, well, computational power is, is increasing all the time, and we have more computational uh, ability. That, and then we, we, we now have more sophisticated algorithms. And, of course, now we can develop apps and, you know, chat GPT and other things like this. So that's one side of AI, that the generative AI. Mm-hmm. The other side that we use is we, we're using AI to automate processes that are not impossible for human beings, but are more difficult for human beings to, to process, or it takes them too long. Uh, so it's just too time consuming. A human beings should be, in, in our case, they should be, 
writing the application and making sure maybe ChatGPT can help with that a little bit or a lot, but making sure that a great application is put together. What we're doing is taking a process that's manually intensive, but an algorithm can do it faster. So we bring in all this data, an algorithm can go through this data, put it in a format that we can query it, and the same thing for the profiles of the researchers. And then we use machine learning to the, for the matches. So every good match that we get, we learn from it. And every, eh, this wasn't as good as you thought, Sherry, match, that we learn from that. So the algorithms learn from the, just the process. So the more researchers we have, the more funding opportunities we have, our, our algorithms continuously learn from that. So I know I answered the question in a different way, but I don't have a background in it, but I find it fascinating. And this is part of my continuous learning is to learn more about it. Well, I think it, it just, to me, it sounds like that's what you're wired to do and that learning curve and digging into and unpacking those, that kind of technology for you is really interesting. I mean, what I hear you saying all of that, you know, when we go back to where we kind of started this conversation, when you look at scalability and then you look at the impact that AI and that technology has in terms of efficiencies and to your point is, you know, it's not that you can't do things manually. I mean, there's a way to do that, but is it, is it, is it efficient? Is it effective? Is it accurate? You know, how cumbersome is it? You know, can we scale based on that? And, you know, and often the answer comes back to kind of, sort of, not really. But let me ask you this question in terms of profound impact. Do you consider yourself a technology company or like what container do you live in? A combination of both. So if somebody is asking you, uh, you know, what, what kind of industry do you play in? Well, that's a good question. We, we, we're a technology company. So it's software as a, providing software as a service mm -hmm. for the research and education environment. I mean, I love the concept of it all. I think it's just really cool that you found this niche and, and it's a big niche. And, and I mean, it's multi-million or, you know, hundreds of millions of possible, uh, you know, of possibilities in, in terms of dollars and revenue. And uh, I think that's really exciting. So in all of this, uh, are you CEO? Are you founder? What, where are you sitting in this, this business model today, Sherry? I'm the founder, president, and CEO. Okay. That's great. And so this is your brainchild. And where do the, because, you, you know, we talked a little bit earlier and you mentioned it, is where do, where does your passion for supporting women in business come from? And how does that, I mean, to me, it aligns with the statement of profound impact. I love that name, by the way. It says a lot. When you think about and share your insights into you know, why it's important. Where do, where do empowering women come into this for you and kind of how did that evolve? And was it always that way for you? Or is this just a real cool opportunity that you see works well? Well, I, I believe that I've been wired this way from early on. One was my interest in mathematics as a child. I was like, I think I was in second grade. My father took a it wasn't an online course. It was a mail course, by, via mail course for electrical engineering. And I picked up his workbooks and started working through them. And by the time I was in fifth grade, I was at a 10th grade level in mathematics. So I, first of all, I loved arithmetic. It led into mathematics. And then it led me into a career in STEM where I saw an opportunity as a woman to encourage other young girls and women to 
uh, pursue education and a career in STEM. I also saw the opportunity when I moved from working for the U.S. government to going, I went to Silicon Valley to a startup. And at that time, there was not, there wasn't a woman in the C-suite at the company that I was at. And I saw that, that that was a big gap in many ways. It was a very toxic uh, environment. And I was, I wanted to change that. And I believe the way we change it is have more women at the end of the week and also founders because founders can influence the culture more. And so that's what happened with me. I started with a startup in Silicon Valley, did very well myself because I had a, what I had a very strong technical background. This was technology that I was selling. And uh, so I, I, I changed from a technical role to a sales role. And I, I really did it because I wanted to control my own destiny. I felt, I, I thought I could make more money being a salesperson than I can be back in the office sitting doing the coding. And I, I believe that. So I put myself out there. I was very successful. Then I said, how do I get more women? How do, how do I help empower more women? So this has been in my early 20s that I said, this is something I want to do. I want to build up companies. I want to build up, a, create a culture and culture ad environment. And then I also want now, I want to see more women investing in women-led ventures. When you were, uh, let's talk a little bit about, I'm always interested, you know, in entrepreneurs and in your case as well as an entrepreneur. When you think about growing up, you at a very young age picked up that book and the next thing you know, you realize that your brain fires a little bit differently than most. I mean, you just the word mathematics kind of makes me doze off a little bit. So when you started to, you know, when you were young, uh, do you have siblings, by the way, just out of curiosity, siblings? Yeah. Yes, I am the middle child, to uh, a brother and sister older and a brother and sister younger. Okay. And yes, and what they say about middle child children, it was me. Or is <laughs> it was me. you. <laughs> now, but, but you know, so, you know, your journey, were your parents entrepreneurial? Uh, where did you, where do you think, you know, if you reflect and kind of consider, uh, where did you get your spirit from? I mean, when you think about at some point you said, dad, this is so interesting. I love this stuff. And they just supported you on that path, you know, uh, in amongst other children and, you know, the rest of the family and, and you come along and you do your thing and then you go off and you're working in, uh, in, in that corporate world. Uh, are you starting to, are you, do you th- are you conscious of your own development in terms of how you view the world and really your areas of expertise, how smart you are in those areas and, and others, I'm sure. But like, what is your own evolution when you reflect on on it, you know, and look at, because it takes a certain individual and we're talking about, you know, your recognition going, you know something, I am woman, I am female, I see where there's a gap, I want to support other women and I'm going to fill this freaking gap. Like there's, there's a degree of tenacity and clarity that, you know, you have and, and is it just in you or did you have you ever thought about where it came from or how did you get there? Is it, was it your mom or I, your I dad? would say, yeah. Yeah, I'd say it was my mom. My dad was very uh, supportive. He wasn't much of a risk taker. My family are they're from the Appalachian Mountains, the Tennessee, and my dad had a sixth grade education. My mom had an eighth grade education, although she went back and finished high school in her adult years. But it was their 
Well, first of all, they left Tennessee and moved up to Ohio and Michigan. Ohio is where I grew up. And they, and they were willing to take that risk. So they already were the risk takers, mm-hmm. not the same way as we define it today, but they, they showed me that they could take risk and, and it paid off uh, for them. And they didn't put any boundaries or any expectations necessarily on us. We did have to do certain things, but they never said, Sherry, you have to go to university. But I was the first one, although I'm the middle child, I was the first one to go to university, although my other two sisters have advanced degrees. My sister has a doctorate in education and is in Arizona today. My younger sister, a master's degree in, in um, education, especially for the early child education. And my brothers all finished high school, but didn't go to university. Right. So you look at three, five siblings and three girls, and we all did advanced degrees. And the boys had had successful careers in different ways, but not, they didn't go to the university, but more of the tech, uh, hands-on. So they had different roles. But my mother, my, I, I believe it was my mom. My mom was always solid, but yet wanted more for us, of course, than what she had growing up. But she didn't really set huge expectations for us. But she showed us that they were risk-takers. So that, it, and, 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 you know, the core values, uh, my, the core values of respect for other people and things that later I was kind of shocked to uh, to hear from other environments, family environments, about how p- you talk about people when they leave the room. My parents didn't do that. Different things, and I know that I know that sounds simple, but we didn't have that. Oh, and then I, I go into other environments and I go, "Wow, this is your family environment." <laughs> it was a little bit dysfunctional. Although I can't say that any family is totally functional, but I felt ours was pretty solid in the core values. And that's what I'm, I would say that I, I've stayed true to those core values. And, and so because you opened up the conversation and, and values are one of my favorite conversations because as a you know, business coach and working with individuals, I, you know, I'm always a little bit, I guess I'm not surprised anymore, but I, I assume no one even understands necessarily or recognizes or give any thought to what their core values are or what their values are. You know, for somebody like yourself who is raised in an environment where probably some values were really hammered into you, like respect, like no gossip, like, um, you know, being on time, for example, like really fundamental values that uh, you you take on, you were aware of that they were values and it really kind of showed up when you were in other scenarios with other families and or I'm sure in business where you realize that what values do you live? And most often what I'm finding, and because it's one of the bases of my wife and I coaching, is that we actually have huge conversations about helping people even discover what their their true values are and what their core values are. It's an ongoing conversation. And, and the reason I spend a little bit of time on it in, in why I think it's so important, you know, I look as I listen to your story and as I listen to and you give us and you share that background, I think, and, and you can agree, disagree or whatever, go off on a, a tangent around it, but I look at it and I think the most successful individuals I know in business or really fulfillment in life, understand what their core values are, stay true to those values, are willing to be misunderstood in the context of those values. Don't make anybody else wrong for not having the same values, but just go, yeah, you got your values, I got mine. They don't 
come together, we clash. Uh, so let's move on. Yeah. So having said all of that, what's your what's your kind of thoughts on that? Well, philosophy? I, I I believe in it so much that I've left jobs. I just well, the one in, in, in Silicon Valley that I worked for, it was just that I stood up to the CEO. I could fight for my people. And I had several women who worked for me. I fought for them. I fought for myself, of course, but but I was strong. I was the only one that could stand up to him in the company, man or woman. And I fought and fought and fought. And, and I said, you don't treat people like that. That's no way to treat people. So I just made a decision that I was going to leave. And I had a great job. I had the company gave me such an opportunity. I had never done any of this. I was a mathematician doing this work over here. And they offered, they came in, they said, what job do you want, Sherry? And I said, I want to, I want to head up Asia Pacific sales and South and South America sales. Cause I spent a year in Costa Rica and have a degree in Spanish and they go, okay. And they let me do it. That, that's one thing about a startup. You know, and we'd already had some you know, great sales in, in the U.S. and things were going. So I go, okay. And I didn't know what I was doing. I got on a plane, went to China, went to Hong Kong, went to Japan. At, and the company backed me doing that. And then we set up a distribution channel in, in a few months. And all of a sudden, customers were coming to them because they go, oh, we have support in Asia. We can support you in Central America and South America. And so... To me, it, but it was okay. So I had a great opportunity with this company, but the core values weren't aligned. And I don't think the company even talked about core values. There was no discussion about culture. There wasn't culture. You worked all the time. Saturdays, they brought in bagels, which was good. <laughs> but there was no ever, not ever a discussion about well, why are we really here? To make money? Yes, but what else? And so when I saw it, I thought, okay, I know I can stand up for myself, but I don't like this toxic environment. I tried to change it, and I can't. So how can I change something? So I thought, well, I will go to an even smaller company and start with them, which I did in Canada. And then I, you know, I, I started my own company. So I thought that's the way to do it is to create it. And you don't, you don't create culture with 20 employees. You, you create culture with three with two mm-hmm. and the three people sitting around and you used to say that's just the three of us here today but we're going to grow to here what are our core values and that's what we did as at profound impact even my previous companies too we did so we we had such a strong culture and uh inclusiveness and i mentioned culture ad where you know, we're very lucky to be in canada where we have a diverse uh, workforce and we have 20 people plus we have 10 countries of origin among those 20 people and the so so it's a it's a diversity of thought it's a diversity of of individuals and perspective and it's also it's interesting when you come together especially with young pe- younger people now they think more than just the paycheck they think about flexibility family and impact what's their impact what's our impact going to be so they're looking for more things. So just that whole thing is just, I love it. I love, I love the core values. We start with why. I don't know if you know about yeah. Simon Sinek. That we believe in starting with our why. And we start with that. And, we all, and every 
uh, time we get together, which is not has been often lately, but uh, we just started last year with our uh, August. We had our first in-person meeting and then this past June. Now we're having another one because we're both in Canada and the U.S., bringing everyone together. And we always say, is this still our why? Because your why can change. I know as an individual, my why has changed. Every time I sit jobs, my why has changed pretty much. So uh, anyway, that I, I believe in it. I believe in that it, it starts. It's just like philanthropy, which is also part of our culture, is that it starts at the beginning. It's a foundational piece. Well, it's so interesting that, you know, uh, I love this conversation, if you're okay to stay on it for a little bit, because I think there's a oh, yeah. lot of value for listeners in understanding that, you know, when we talk about core values, you know, some people get it, some don't, some understand what that means in terms of integrity. You know, I often, you know, hear somebody say, well, you know, I say, well, what's one of your, what do you think your core values are? And they usually go money and family and there's a usual pattern and, and integrity comes up and I go, well, let's talk a little bit about integrity. And, and so I'm going to float this past you, Sherry, and, and what's your thought process? Most people relate integrity to, let's say, telling the truth. Okay, let's just leave it there and, and say, you know, that person has no integrity. Well, what does that really mean? So to me, when I look at integrity, and I'm really open to whatever your view is, because obviously you've done a lot of work around this, is I, you know, I define integrity as who are you when nobody's looking, is one statement that I like to make around integrity, is who you are when nobody's watching. And that the reality of it is, is I can't be out of integrity with Sherry. I can be out of, I can lie to Sherry, I can not, I can be dishonest, I can go sideways on a deal, but I can't really be out of integrity. I can only ever be out of integrity with myself. And when I hold integrity, it's because I'm not in alignment with my values. So if one of my values is no gossip, and then the next thing you know, I'm gossiping. Somebody else may not know that one of my values is no gossip, but there I am gossiping. I'm the only person that knows that I'm stating my value as no gossip in my, you know, to myself at least. And that's where I'm out of integrity. So a little bit of that background, what's your thoughts on that? Because I think it's so important is that's where people really get out of alignment, where they get messed up is they don't realize it's them that's out of integrity. Yes. And, and one thing too, is that it's, it's, it's a lot about self-awareness, as you know, sure. and, and you just said it, it's like you're checking in on yourself. And it's okay, you know, to say, you know what? I just screwed up. I just screwed up. And, you know, this is one of my core values and I just blew it. Mm-hmm. And, and you can forgive yourself. Yes. And it's the same thing in a corporation. We're looking for the opportunities to, so we have these core values. We've agreed to them. And then we should be looking for opportunities and applauding the people that, that live up to them and say, but we're, we're, but we're not calling the people out and say, you didn't live up to that. Because that's something we do as a corporation, but as an individual, or if you know, if you know you screwed up, I, that's another thing. It's vulnerability, yes, authenticity, and it's okay to not be perfect. Now, this is tough for me to say because I'm pretty, I'm pretty much a perfectionist. You're a mathematician, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's and, 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 and this this ties into to something else about asking for help. And I haven't always done that, and I've proven to be wrong in many things. But it's to say, so I'm running a a meeting, and all of a sudden, I call somebody out. And it's usually somebody I know very, very well, and I know that they can handle it. But I'm thinking, how did I just not respect them enough? 
you know, there's a right way to do things and then there's a wrong way to do things. But, you know, I can, I come back to the group and I say, I, I'm sorry. You know, it's, it's, it's okay to say, I'm sorry. After you're doing it every day, then you wonder about it. But if, you know, it's, it's okay to say, I, I messed up on this one mm-hmm. and I did not live up to that core value in this way. And, uh, you know, I can do that. So anyway, I can do it collectively in a group plus do it with the individual also. So I think it's one thing about yourself, but if you if you have your core values, which I, I agree with you, I have my priorities and my core values, mm-hmm. and I try to keep up with both of them at all times. But it doesn't mean I always put my family and above work. No, it doesn't always happen that way. So, but but when you really screw up with yourself, because as you say, you know you have, it's just to say. I'm sorry. I I really recognize I'm self-aware that, that I screwed up, and I, it's okay. I can, I know I I can no. I I love I love what you said there in terms of yeah. It's you're we're, listen. We're mere mortals, and sometimes we're going to get drawn down. And I've had that happen to me where I went down a path, and it was a long time before I realized just how out of integrity I was. I was not living true to my values because I'd put myself or I'd gravitated into a culture that wasn't in alignment. And I actually justified, made myself wrong to hang out with a couple of people that in hindsight, it's like, holy cow, was I ever out of whack? And I beat myself up for a long time for that mistake. I'll call it a mistake. But really, it is. it took me a long time to forgive myself and saying it still came from the highest place. And it was, you know, not in alignment, but it wasn't to, you know, to work somebody over. It wasn't, you know, there was no malicious anything around it and no hidden agendas. So anyways, I I share that is that I love what you just said there is you also have to be able to say, you know something? Yeah, I blew that one. Holy cow, was I ever out of whack? I think there's two here is that first off, you have to be aware and even think about what your core values are. I mean, so often as I, you know, work with clients, I see that they're not even living their values. They're living their parents' values, which are okay. I mean, that may be, okay or may not be okay, depending on the environment that you were raised in. They confuse core values with moral values. And of course, that can get a little bit messy. But I I think it's important to shine a light on. And I'm really interested, you know, given your background in business and you talk about culture and environment. And I love that. I sit down with my teams at least once a year with everybody, right down to the guy who works part-time and sweeps the floor. And we get together for several hours and we touch on what is the culture? Are we are we collectively in agreement with what we want this culture to be and how we communicate, how we treat each other, what we do, and what is the environment that we create? Now, I'm a hands-off business owner of a business that I've had for 40 years. I haven't even had a key to the business since 2005. But it's all to say that I'm still in the background working with the key management team. And we talk a lot about environment. We talk a lot about culture. We talk a lot about alignment. And and I'll give you an example of just, you know, my general manager phoned me last week or a couple of weeks ago, doesn't matter, and said, you know, I got this kid. I want to hire him, but I'm a little bit nervous about him. I don't know how he's going to fit. He's a like an all-star sales guy. I know he will crush it. But I just don't think he aligns and we need staff. What's your thoughts? So we had a whole conversation about what it is to bring somebody in that 
won't fit in the culture and the price we pay because we want that sales team. We want that key sales guy. And you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna riff off one more thing before I pass you pass it over to you and get your view of this, Sherry. Is I'm rewriting a course that we teach, which is called Raising Capital. Now, in Raising Capital, and you would know this one really well, is that when you're working with partners, capital partners, joint venture partners, it's a partnership. And, you know, it's hard to, you know, when I say to individuals who are raising capital to buy real estate, that's primarily the game that I play, but also business. So one of the most difficult things you'll ever find yourself doing is not taking a big check because you don't share common values with that capital partner. And you know, and I, I'm going to warn you right now, when you make money the priority, as opposed to aligning with values and understanding what that money really means, it will come back to bite you in the ass almost every single time. It won't happen tomorrow. And even worse, it'll happen in future years where it gets way more complicated and way more expensive. So I'll leave that there because you've raised a lot of capital and you uh, are talking about culture, environment and values. So what's your what's your thoughts on that little kind of rant there, Sherry? <laughs> I just I really align with that because I, I I mentioned earlier about the Silicon Valley company that I worked with. And one time I just I, I was so fed up. I just said, you know what? I'm going to speak up and I'm going to do this. If they fire me, I'll go flip hamburgers. I mean, I can, whatever job I do, I don't, I can be really good at it. So I, I, I had, I really, I, I was thinking, what am I going to do if I do this? But they were wrong, totally wrong. And I had to speak out against it. And it was like, okay, this could be my job. This could be my livelihood. But I, I just said, I'm going to do it and stand up for it. And uh, it happened to me at another company I was at too. I, it's not necessarily taking capital right now, but I, I, it was about, I was a CEO of a, of a public company. Mm-hmm. And I, when I took the job, a mistake I made, I didn't bring my own CFO in. So I learned that lesson. So the existing CFO was doing something I didn't think was legal. And I went to the board and they fired me and kept him. Wow. So, yeah. So <laughs> then you realize, hey, that's why. And then when I got home, I felt this big weight come off of me. Yeah. I mean, I, I was disappointed because I brought on in a lot of investors too to this company. So, you know, and I invested money. And, but I felt like, wow. And it was because it was my misalignment of core values. And I didn't even notice it until they made that decision. And then I thought, Oh my God, it's been here all along. And I didn't even notice that their core values and my core values weren't aligned. Why am I CEO of this company when the board doesn't, their core values don't align with mine? So it, it was it was walking away from a, a, a money versus, but again, it's a similar thing. Like you're going to get a, when you're a CEO and the board, you're partners, right? And, and, the, and, the, and the senior management, this is a partnership that you're working with. And and then if they, the individuals don't fit in with the core values. And when I hire somebody and somebody goes, you know, they won't fit in. I said, tell me why they won't fit in. Is it their core values? Or is it that just they have a different perspective? Now, that's different, right? So you have, you have to learn that. And I'm not saying I've always gotten that right. I haven't. Yeah. Because I've had to hire. I've hired and then I've had to fire. And it's just like, uh, I hate that. 
and you lose money and they, you, you know, you just hate doing it. And the person feels bad. You feel bad. It's like, okay, it wasn't a good fit. And, and then you realize later, but when people say that to me, I have to just say, drill down a little bit more. Uh, why, why is it a bad, is, is it not a good fit? Is, is it because they're going to challenge me? I need to be challenged. Are they not going to necessarily agree with me every time I make a decision? That's okay. Well, you know, these are, you know, it's interesting that these are tough lessons to learn. And, you know, there's, there's that, whatever the, you know, that phrase, however it goes is the only person that you'll ever live with for the rest of your life is you. And you have to live with yourself and you have to be able to sleep at night or at least in good conscience, uh, live your life knowing that you're doing the best you can in terms of living those values. Now, you know, I want to share a quick story, which is, and I want to, then I want to link it back to you, which I think is really what I heard in what you said. So many years ago, and I'm talking maybe 25 years ago, I'm watching a golf tournament. It was a local tournament in Edmonton, Alberta. It was like the first TELUS Open or something along that line that Alberta ever had. There was a young golf, uh, golfer who was literally golfing for his first time in a pro game. And uh, he was crushing it. Like he was leading the pack by a, a number of strokes. But I think he gets to like the 14th hole. He, his ball goes into the rough. He finishes the game, wins the game by two strokes, picks up his ball. And in that moment, he realized that when he went into the rough, he had grabbed and hit the wrong ball. So what's interesting about that and why this story is, is really powerful is that he was the only one that knew that. And so when he's signing his card, he said, I can't sign this card. I just realized that when I hit the ball out of the rough. Now, what's really crazy about this story and so profound is I think he walked away from 50 grand and 25 years ago, 50 grand was a hell of a lot more money than it is today, and it's even still a lot of money today. But he was not prepared, and so the press, of course, are interviewing him, and they go, why did you say, why did you tell anybody? Nobody knew that you had done that. And he just said, I knew. And that's the only person that needed to know. And so, from his perspective. So when I'm hearing you speak, I mean, I... I can't imagine, and I'm, I'm curious, is the psychology of this because you've seen it, I've seen it, we've both done it ourselves at some point, well, you shared with it, but when you stand in the conviction of the value to the degree you did, where you said, no, I don't give a shit, I'll lose my job, I don't care, I'm not going to compromise this, I can't help but wonder, like, were you aware of that, what gave you the strength or the confidence or like, where did that come from in you to say, no, I'm just not going to compromise my view of the world and my values? Like, where did that come from? Oh, that's hard to believe. Probably from my parents <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. how they raised me. But yes, and, and again, uh, you, you, you alluded to it, uh, the people you hang around with too, right? They reinforce all of this too. Yeah, I, I guess it just, it just again, what does a core value mean? It means that it's all the way in your core. Yeah. It's just like, and that, as I said, we don't get it right every time, but this is this is my core value and I'm not going to deviate from it. What I know, purposely know. And I guess that's one of the things is that I, you know, I'd hate that I hate being fired. I hated threatening to quit. They didn't let me quit. They didn't fire me. The Silicon Valley company didn't. I, I later left 
but they didn't fire me over this thing. They they took notice and they did something about it, which was good because that was a proactive thing that they weren't always, I should say reactive. Uh, they weren't always so uh, amenable. But I got, I just felt that, you know, if just like this golfer, the young golfer says, I, I've got to live with myself. And then, yeah, so what, that, that, that's one of the, the real core values is one that you say, I'm not going to compromise on this. This is one thing I don't compromise. I can compromise on a lot of things and I can, I'm trying to be self-aware and learn more about myself and learn how I deal with people because it's not perfect every time. Mm-hmm. I hope I get, I get, a, I hope I get a passing mark most of the time, but it's not a hundred percent. Yeah. And so when I, so I go back and I go, oh, okay, I, I, you know, as I've said, I, I, I have to admit, but admitting that you're, you're wrong is, is a big step in, in, in all of this, but also knowing when you're right and staying true to that right within you and just saying, I'll compromise on a lot of things, but I won't compromise on this. Well, I th- you said something, Sherry, that I want to just kind of lift the hood a little bit more, unpack a little bit more. And, and and like I say, I'm going on about this topic because I think it's that important for business owners and for anybody just in life in general. I think it's really essential, you know, in terms of just overall satisfaction in life and happiness and, and who you attract. And that's where I want to go to with it is that, you know, when you live your values, when you stay true to your values, like attracts like. And ultimately, the people that come into your life will align with those values. And those that don't kind of tend to wander away or you wander away. You know, it's it's not confrontational. You go, no, I'm not really aligned with this guy or this girl. You know, like I'm out, you know, so it move, you move on. But when you're kind of facing those kind of challenges, if you will, with the corporation, with what you were trying to stand for, even with a CFO that you didn't align with, how important was your friends that you aligned with and having, were you having those kinds of conversations and kind of getting, I don't know so much about guidance, perhaps a different view of the world, but when you surround yourself with like-minded people, at least you can have these conversations in a really meaningful way. Is, is that true for you as well, Sherry? Oh, definitely. I, I think it is very true. My sister, she's one of my confidants and, really, you know, able to bounce things off of her and say, you know, I did this. Or even my, uh, Scott, my husband, who was alive at that time when I got fired as a CFO, but because of the CFO situation, and just to be able to sit down with him and just say, you know, this isn't, this is what it is. And uh, I, I, it wasn't, as I said, I was, I should have been a little more in tune mm-hmm. uh, with that, that, that I wasn't aligning with these individuals I thought I was, or maybe I wanted to believe I was, but it was interesting that, as you said, when you start peeling it back, you go, oh my gosh, this was so obvious that they were all in. It wasn't just the CFO, the other people, they were colluding. They were, uh, they were all on the same page. I was the only one that was not on that page with them. So it's like, woo, I want to be as far away from these people as I possibly can. Once you understand that, but yes, so surrounding yourself with good people and and mentors and you know what I what I've enjoyed is is the mentors that I've had uh, and people that I've had access to and and uh, I mentioned earlier about not asking for help. Mm-hmm. I had this mentor. I, I'll call her a mentor. And uh, when I sold my last company, she was uh, 
okay, I won't mention her name, but she's the CEO of a very large corporation in Canada. And the, about a week after I signed the LOI with the company that bought my company, Bosch, it's a German company, she called me and said, I, I'd like to talk about buying your company. And I thought, oh my God, I, why didn't I reach out to her mm-hmm. and ask for s- some advice? Because she was my mentor. So I learned a big lesson that mentors, having mentors, being able to ask for help is huge and being successful. You can't do it all your own. That's another thing. You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to get it right all the time. And you just hope that you're 51% above and 49% below that right level. But uh, the other thing is that delegating and uh, asking for help is, is something I do. And that when I mentor people, I try to sell them. I said, don't be afraid to reach out to people and ask them. They can always say no, right? They can say, I don't have time for you today or or let's you know, schedule this coffee some other time. But don't be afraid to seek help and seek advice because if you certainly, if you find some people who align with your core values too, and I did in a couple of um, individuals that are local here in Ontario, and uh, I still look up to them immensely and I'll respect what they said to me. And one was about hiring a, pers- a person. Uh, it was interesting because uh, I, I was trying. I wanted to hire this young man, and one of the people that I was trying to get to invest in me in the company. This was my previous company. He told me because this this young man had worked for him, and he goes, "If you hire him, I'm out. I'm not investing." And I just wanted to understand why. So then I went to talk to my my mentor, and I just said, "I I believe this person is the right person." And I'm going to go ahead and hire them, but this is what I'm giving up. That was that walking away from some, from an investor. Yeah. And uh, you know, we, we just gave me some advice. He said, and, and you know, I was sitting in my car at the at the mall talking, and I'm going, "What am I going to do? Because I'm going to lose this investor if I do this." But I I know this is the right thing to do, and uh, so he guided me through that, and so. I think it was more that it was that I can't exactly remember his words, but it, it was it was about being true to yourself and knowing and following your gut. And, and uh, this this young man was is a superstar, and still is. You found a unicorn. You weren't let going to let it go. Now, what did the investor ultimately do? Did the investor did the investor pull out? Did they did they leave? Yeah, yeah, they never invested. Oh, there you go. Well, there you go. Yeah. So you stay true to your values. Your investor trade true to their values, whatever those might have been. A, a classic. Yeah. I mean, but I think that's a good thing. Like it really nipped the relationship in the bud early on at the end of the day. And I get the pressure that, as I as I say to you know anybody raising capital, the biggest challenge you'll face is one day you're going to have to pass the check back and go. You know something. I just don't think this is going to work, and that will be a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. And, uh, and and sometimes and sometimes you can't undo it. Yeah, uh, I I have I I know a lot of people who have accepted investments from specific entities, and it became the demise of the company. Wow. And I'm not no I don't know how you do that with as far as having that crystal ball, but in fact I, this the young man. I was at his house and he was telling me what was going on. And I called him back and I said, 
I have to tell you, I have to give you some advice. I know, ignore me if you wish, but I would get an employment lawyer if I were you. And I would make sure that I was protected because this is what they're doing. And it was exactly what happened. And it's just because I'd seen it before. And they were doing things that, one, he didn't agree with, and so he was standing up to them. And 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 he knew more about the business than they did. Yeah. So anyway, it was just that, okay, I don't, it just, I've seen it so many times that you take the money from people and then it doesn't align, but it may be too late. Your company may already be taken away from you, possibly. And, 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 so and good. So, I, anyway. love, I love this wisdom. You know, one of the things that, and I'm sure you've come across this as well, Sherry, is that, you know, you talk about having mentors. I mean, one of the questions I often get asked is how do I find a mentor and you know how do I create that kind of mentor relationship how can I do that intentionally um, I'd like to hear your view on that and and then as well you know do you think because I'm surprised at how often I mean within the real estate investment network we have a very large community uh, even with the podcast I'm constantly saying if you got any questions comments if you you know need some support Email me at CEO at raincanada.com, CEO at reincanada.com. I make that a very public email. Reach out anytime. And I'm always surprised, given the the you know the the scope of who listens and the scope of the community, how few people actually do. And and so what's your experience? Do you think people's do you think it's just ego that gets in the way or fear of being made wrong? I, what is it that, what stops people based on your experience? So two questions there. I know I got, I rambled on. Yeah. So how do people I, find? I, I would, yeah, I would say, I would say that the one thing is the fear of being rejected, right? So the other thing though, is that mentoring and men, being a part of a mentor relationship, if it's a long-term, maybe just a short-term one is, especially for a longer-term one, it is about I get as much a, as a mentor out of it as a mentee does, but there has to be a common ground that we have. And and I also like, what is your ask mm. of me? Mm-hmm. And uh, if it's if it's like if, if they, some people contact me and they say I'd like to invest, I'd like for you to invest in my company, you know, I say okay, then then there's, there's a process for that. But what what is your ask of me? And then what? What is your commitment? I don't want to spend my time with you and you ignore everything I say. Now, I'm not here to just give you advice, advice, advice. It's about to talk about what you're going through and hear your stories. And, and no, you don't have to listen to my stories all the time. I want to hear yours. But it's a commitment on both sides. So even if it's for just a half an hour conversation, which is, which is good. Like, and, I, and, and I must say, okay, even myself, again, you have to be clear with your ask. What is my ask? People can reach out to me, and they do, but I, I want to know what your ask is. Are you asking to be a, a, a introduced to someone? Are you asking for money? Are you asking for my time just to hear your story, to listen, read your business plan, what, you know, something like that? So be clear in the ask. But also, you will get rejected, because especially if you don't know the person, because a lot of this is about relationship. Yeah. The mentors that... I didn't reach out to them cold call. There are people that I met. I was introduced by other people. So there was some type of thing like that. So if you know somebody that might be like, I'm, I might not be able to help them. 
And I'll say, I can't help you, but I know somebody I can introduce you to. And that warm introduction means a lot to them and should mean a lot to them because it is, it's important. Well, I think you make a really good point here. And that is be clear on your ask. You know, if somebody drops me an email, if somebody fires me an email and goes, you know, I'm working on this project right now. I know that's an area of your expertise. I got three things that I don't quite know what to do with. Boom, boom, boom. Any guidance you can give me, either reply in this email or can we arrange a call? I only need about 15 minutes of your time. That's a really clear ask and then managing an expectation. And to your point, you know, too often, uh, those that are wanting mentorship want to share a story. They want to give a background and you go, hold it. You know, what is it that you need out of this conversation? Because that part of it, I'm not interested in. I don't need to know what is your question. And so to your point, you know, set the context for, you know, if you're going to ask for some guidance, some mentorship and, and trying to create relationship, be clear, be concise, know that that individual is busy, be respectful of their time, and then do what you say you're going to do. 10 minutes. These are the questions. Boom, boom, boom. Thanks for your help. Hope we can circle back again. Like it's, it's around clarity. And, you know, the phrase that I like to use is clarity equals velocity. And when you are clear, when you understand what it is you're asking for, what your values are, clarity equals velocity because it's not sticky. You know where you're moving forward to and how to approach somebody and have that conversation. So that's uh, really love that part of, uh, and I like that you're a mentor in that regard. Now, I want to circle back, Sherry, and talk to you a little bit about kind of one of your passions is supporting women in kind of in business, in entrepreneurship, in moving forward. You know, what is the gap that you recognize? You know, uh, why women? Why is it a thing for you? What, what showed up for you? And just is it based on your experience or what is it? Yes. Well, based on my experience, for sure. I mentioned earlier that I had a, a background in information security. I was well-known in the industry and worldwide. And so when it came for me to raise money and when I was in those industries, also, I'll just put this caveat around this, that the economic environment also influences. So when you're raising money, what happens, right? Mm -hmm. So my last raise, which we just completed on August 4th, we started about this time last year putting together our pitch deck and going out there this is a new area for me. I mentioned I'm not an expert in AI and machine learning. What I am good at is putting together teams that can be successful. Before I was able to open up doors with my own credentials, now I'm trying to do it in the old-fashioned way. I've got open doors with, <laughs> with sales and a good product and a great team. And this is not about me, although I lead with that, is that I just finished this round of funding and I would go into these to these pitches, and I would be the only woman, and there'd be three men or two men pitching. And I had the track record. None of them had had a startup before. And it was almost as if I was dismissed and not, uh, no, we're not going to look at you. And I was kind of sorry. Oh my God, okay. Uh, don't they know who I am? That's <laughs> <laughs> my track record and all this. And, uh, so I started talking to other women, and I, I realized that this is very common. This is not uncommon. And uh, so I, the last year I've been on the soapbox ranting about this. Just every time I had talked to somebody, this was what I got. I said, we need to figure out what is wrong with this equation. 
it's not adding up. Is it because the BCs I'm talking to, the investors, are all men? Or uh, is there something in the process itself that is an intentionally biased? What is going on here? So <laughs> here I am ranting and raving about it, and but not able to do anything about it. So I decided, you know what? I'm not even talking to them anymore. I'm only talking to women. Wow. And that's why I was able to raise this money by going to family offices, talking to women of wealth who had never invested outside of their, you know, portfolios. Then their money managers have that. I said, take a little bit, just take a little bit and invest. You know, find some companies, just not mine, but others and, and see. And then look into it. I mean, don't go and throw your money away, but do it just like you would do your philanthropy. I have a good friend. She, her, her philosophy to philanthropy is just like a VC would be. She says, these are the areas I'm going to invest in, and I keep money. I keep follow-on money so I can invest again and again at different stages along the way, just like she does with her philanthropic. And so I thought, oh, my God, we can use that same model for uh, women in, uh, uh, investing in women-led ventures. So I was able to go out and raise money, for, and the majority of first-time female investors. And so now I'm uh, working with a group called Women Funding Women, and we're uh, doing an event in early uh, uh, next year, not to, not to reinvent the wheel, but just to take this and, and try to say, how do we get more women into this pool? And there's a study out of Calgary, a group called the 51, it means 51%, meaning females, and the Movement 51 is uh, their uh, educational arm. And they're educating women to, to learn a first-time female investors. So what they say is that, that, through a study that the 51 did, that we can increase the pool of money, like $41.3 trillion, if we could get women investing in the pool and putting their money in. So this is, my, uh, this is what I'm passionate about right now, not just for myself, but for other women-led ventures, they're not going to change. The good old boys are not going to change because I don't even think they understand that there's biases. They don't see that it's biases. They have a process. You didn't make the checklist, Sherry. Your pitch was not as good as their pitch. Women don't pitch as well as men. So I went and took another course on pitching. And I even sent a note. I even sent the note from the pitch coach. It was a neutral pitch coach. And I sent it to them. I go, see, I passed. <laughs> But yeah, it, it was just like, okay, this is, so instead of fighting that, I decided to be proactive and move forward and, 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 uh, well, you know, part of what you, what you just shared is really interesting. Cause as I said, I'm in the middle of rewriting a program, an educational program that we did about raising capital. And, you know, within that, we talk about, you know, what, what would an elevator pitch look like, you know, which is, I don't want to make that sound like it's a thing, but anyways, here's the one fundamental that I base it on, which to you, I'm hearing you say it, and and that is that you're pitching to women, but here's the thing. You are going in as a CEO or whatever position you hold in that pitch. You're speaking to women. They are very clear on what your values are, and they're very clear on what your vision is based on those values and what it is that you're bringing to the table in terms of your investment strategy and why you see this as an opportunity and why you're having these con this conversation with women. And they're opening up their wallets going, 
yes, I relate to that. I really love those values. I align. I see the vision of what it is that you're trying to achieve. And I mean, just, and I know it's deeper than that, but if people just understood that one fundamental concept, be clear on your vision, be clear on your values, speak to the values of the person that you're pitching so that it does align with them. And if it doesn't, then good, walk away. That's all good. But it's really powerful. Like I'm, t- I'm learning a lot as I'm talking to you, Sherry. So it's really great. It, it's a little bit of confirmation bias because I really align with what you're talking about, and uh, I'm really glad that you're sharing what you're sharing based on your experience because you've got a ton of experience. And so when you go forward, what's what is is this the future for you right now? Is to continue to grow that business? I mean, you've made a lot of money. You've had a lot of success. Is there a thing called I don't know retirement or how do you see yourself in the future? And I know that's a big question. You can kind of start and work your way through it. Yeah. Um, well, I like any good business person, I should be looking at like successor and who's going to lead this company because I believe it's going to be a company that's going to be around, around for a long, long time. And I hope so. And working towards that. So I am planning to, within a few years, I haven't hit pulling it down to a month, uh, but uh, be moving more to in it, uh, maybe uh, just a chair of the board role with this corporation. Um, I want to see it successful. I want to see it grow. I want it to see uh, to to be everything that I believe it can be. I mentioned I had sold my last company, and when I sold it, we were only five years old, and we, again, we, it's, it's a cultural, and it was, the culture was so great. We had such a great team. We were required, really, for our people, because uh, we were experts in the area. Of, of security for the driverless car and connected vehicle. That was the area we were in. And when I sold it, and I stayed on for one year transition, thank God I didn't agree to two years, but one year. And I felt, and I, I've never had children, but I felt like as if it, my son just got married and I'm no longer allowed to voice my opinion on anything that's going on in his life. And I felt like that with the company. So I decided, you know what? I don't want to do that again. I want to, I want this to grow uh, organically. And I, uh, maybe through acquisitions of other companies, but I want to see it really grow to something big and sustainable and scalable and really scale up to be a very successful company. It may be me as the helm. It may not be. So I've decided, you know what? Maybe next couple of years, I, I'll bring, well, I'm bringing people in now that can take over that role so that it may be the best thing to do. I'm not saying that's, you know, it may fall, it may not fall out that way, but, and then, you know, of course, with new investors coming in next year, we're getting ready for five to $10 million raise next year. Things will change too. And, and, and with that, as long as they align with my core values, I should be fine. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and you got a great strategy <laughs> and you've been around the block a little bit and you understand business. When you build these businesses and, you know, as we start to wind down a little bit, you know, when you build the business, are you building it with the intention of selling it or are you building it as if you may one day sell it and you want to have, you want to, you want to structure the business so that it can be saleable should it come to that? Or are you going in intentionally going, I'm going to build this and then I'm going to exit? What's your kind of thought process around it, Sherry? Well, I, I really would like to build it to grow and, and remain a, a Canadian company. Not that that is the number one thing, but I, I really, although I'm an American too, I, I really do like being here in Canada. I want to see it grow. I, as I said, I've exited five, four times, two IPOs, two acquisitions. And 
I, I would love to see it just grow, at, just to grow to, you know, be one of the unicorns. And even though I don't think they we can even use that phrase anymore, can we? But, but, you know, to be a dollar company and be successful and hire a lot of people and, and, and keep that core value, I hope, and all of that. And I'd like to see that happen. And I, I know it has happened. It's not that it's never been done before. But to do that, I, I'd love to see that happen. As I said, it may not be me as a CEO bringing it that far, but that's what, that, that would be my, that, you know, that's my ultimate goal. We'll see where it goes. Well, listen, Sherry, you've been very generous with your time. As we wind down, I like to do a little bit of what I call rapid fire, which are rarely rapid, but we're going to go through and ask some questions and uh, have some laughs and hopefully have some fun with it. Are you ready for some quick questions? Yeah. yeah. Okay, it's here okay. we go. Android or Apple? Android. Android. No kidding. I'm going to share that with a good friend of mine who's like, I. You know why? Why? In the beginning, it was because of security. Anyway. Oh, interesting. And does, and does that even stand today for you? Uh, it, it's not the same as it was several years ago. Back in the yeah. olden days. Back in the olden days. Yeah. Anyways, that's yeah, cool. the olden days. Yeah. Great. Do you have a favorite song or a favorite band you listen to? Are you a music file at all? I am. I'm a country music fan. Oh, country it's music. It's almost everything country music fan. Kane yeah. Brown, especially some of the young. <laughs> and artists come up. Matt Morgan Wallen. Wow. Yeah. Have you never heard of him? He's from Tennessee, okay. where I was born. <laughs> so, okay. I'm going to Google that. I'm going to Google that for sure. Find out. I don't know that name, so I'm not familiar with it, but I will definitely check it out. You have a favorite movie? Oh, my goodness. Uh, the Eyes of Laura Mars. Oh. Mm, that's an old one. That's an old one. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's an Gosh, old one. that's a good yeah. one, though. That is a, wow, you're really pulling that one out of the archives. <laughs> <laughs> do, you have a, do you have a favorite swear word? Ooh, wow. My mother would not like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but the good news is. But, are... but that's, that's, an, that's an internal one. <laughs> that's an internal one. I say it to myself. You don't, oh, you don't say it out loud too much. Out. You don't say it out too loud, <laughs> uh, loud too. Okay. Well, that's good though. I mean, I've had guests where, you know, some guests, you know, they F bomb all over the place and they're loud and boisterous about it, which I can sometimes be. Having said that, I've had guests that go, I've asked that question and they go, yeah, no, I don't swear. I go, what the hell? How can you not swear? But anyways. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I do swear. You do. Don't tell my mom. Oh. And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's not always the best words. So, yeah. Your room, your desk, or your car? Your room, your desk, or your car? What do you clean first? My car. Your car. Interesting. My, yeah, my car has to be clean. My desk is always a mess, and my rooms are fine. My desk is cluttered, not dirty, and my car has to be spotless. Wow, that's interesting. Hmm. I'm sure there's something behind that little mental thing going on. I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but but it's interesting. You know, a, a good friend of mine, you know, owns Porsches, and you know, he owns a you know he owns a, a, a car, and he owns a uh, an SUV, all Porsche. But he treats them like you know like. They're dirty, you know, they, he rarely vacuums them out. I go, dude, you drive a Porsche. He goes, yeah, so what? I go, well, clean your car. He goes, it's just a car. Yeah. Like, to me, it means that I'm, I'm using it, and that's what I paid for, so I'm going to use it. I go, okay. So it's just an interesting perspective, isn't it? 
Yeah, and, and people would say that same thing about my cluttered desk, right? Yeah. Uh, you can't. Some people can't think or work at a cluttered desk. I can. Now, I I I happen to be very lucky. I have a Lamborghini, mm-hmm. and that's why I keep it looking really, really nice. <laughs> oh, so you're it's, a sports no, no, car? Okay, yeah. God. Yeah, <laughs> I love sports cars. I always have. Oh, and isn't that great? Had well, okay, well yeah. that makes sense. See, I would expect the Lambo to be clean. You know? Yes. I, I would expect definitely. that. Yeah. When you die, if there's such a thing as God, what do you want to hear God say when you're a chi or when you get to the gates? You made an impact. And I believe that was exactly what he'll say or she'll say. <laughs> oh boy. You go down a rabbit hole real fast on that question, hey? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Sherry, just to round it all out, what are you grateful for today? To have this opportunity to be alive right now. There's so much exciting going on and in the world because we have a lot of challenges, but we have such great opportunities and hope. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Well, I am grateful to have had this conversation with you today. I appreciate your time and the insights that you shared. Much, much wisdom in this conversation. So thank you so much. And thank you for this opportunity. It's been quite enjoyable. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.